linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to begin today's program by saying how gratifying it is that people find these podcasts worth not only their time to listen to them, but each week it seems uh, to work out that more than enough donations come in to keep our hosting and other expenses paid up several months ahead. So you can uh, rest assured that these podcasts are going to be available for a long time to come. And this week, I'd like to thank fellow saloners Patricia O., Mangus L., and Thomas S., all of whom very generously made donations to the salon. And so Thomas, Mangus, and Patricia, thank you so very much for being an integral part of the salon. I I really appreciate your help. And so uh, here we are at podcast number 151, And I'm just now getting around to playing a talk that I'd originally planned to use as my third program. The main reason I've taken so long to get this out to you is that for several years now I've been told that a better quality recording of today's podcast was made and would eventually reach me. And uh, maybe it will someday, but uh, I've decided to quit waiting for that day to come around. So even though the sound quality is, uh, well, it's really bad... uh, I still wanted to hear it again myself, and uh, I figured that, well, maybe you'll enjoy listening to it, too. What we're about to hear is uh, from the All Chemical Arts Conference that Terrence McKenna co-produced with uh, two of his friends in September of 1999, just a, a few months before he died. The conference was held at a hotel in Hawaii on the Big Island uh, and not very far from Terrence's home. Compared to uh, John Hanna's Mind States conferences, uh, this was much smaller. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but the way I remember it, there were no more than 100 people there, including the presenters. And uh, what an incredible lineup it was. We began on a Sunday. Uh, Terrence was the first speaker, and uh, that's the first talk I'm going to play today. The next day, we heard from Alex Gray, Roberto Venosa, Luis Carlino, and Tom Robbins, among others. And uh, there were four more days to follow, Uh, and uh, it was really an amazing conference. And that's where I first met Mark Pesci and Bruce Damer, uh, both of whom were also presenters at the conference. According to the brochure advertising it, uh, the purpose of the conference was, quote, to explore the relationship between chemically induced visionary states and creativity. As I said, the talks began on Sunday afternoon with Terrence's presentation, and it officially ended at the roundtable discussion on Friday morning where everybody joined in. But the last formal presentation was on Thursday afternoon, and it was a long-anticipated panel discussion with Tom Robbins and Terrence McKenna. And I'll be playing uh, about 20 minutes or so of that one uh, after I first play part of Terrence's opening talk. Now, the reason I keep saying the part I have is that uh, I've never had a complete or even a very clear recording of any of the talks given at this conference. After all, uh, this took place in 1999, and uh, not only were digital recorders not to be seen, but uh, I had no idea that I'd even need a recording to podcast nine years later. You know, it was only by chance that I even have the uh, short segments that I'm going to play for you now. But rather than uh, go into that whole story right now, uh, let me just get on with the program, as they say. 
One of the reasons I'm going to uh, play this tape, uh, even though the sound quality makes it uh, somewhat hard to listen to, is that uh, everyone there was aware that uh, Terrence was dying of an incurable brain tumor. And we also knew that, uh, for most of us at least, this would be the last time that we were together with him in the flesh, so to speak. And so it was uh, an emotional time for everybody there, uh, especially for Terrence, of course. So at the end of his uh, first talk, the one I'm going to play, he more or less uh, laid the cards on the table and uh, went on to uh, thank the entire psychedelic community for being with him all of these years. And now that he has uh, so many fans that are finding him through these and other podcasts, I think that it's uh, quite fitting for uh, you, too, to hear his words of uh, thanks, uh, because he's talking to you, directly to you. Uh, Even though you may not think you are doing enough to help raise the level of human consciousness, just by using some of your precious time to listen to the bard McKenna weave his magic, uh, his magic of the mind... uh, Just by uh, tuning into these vibrations, uh, it seems to me that you are doing all you need to do. So when you hear Terrence say how much he appreciates all of you, uh, I want you to know, my dear fellow Saloners, that the you he was talking about back then is the you that you are right now. It's the psychedelic community that he's talking about, and uh, whether you like it or not, it now seems that uh, you have somehow self-selected yourself to be a member of this community. So, uh, welcome home if you're newly arrived, and uh, if you've been here a while, you're probably saying you wish I'd just shut up and play the McKenna talk, (laughs) which is really a good idea. And so, uh, let's join Terrence McKenna now, here in Cyberdelic Space, and uh, perhaps we'll hear our next clue. which come out of the unconscious and which may appear straightforward at first, but which in fact are charged with possibilities and dimensions that you don't sense or realize until you're, you're committed uh, to it, you're brought in through it somehow. Yeah. The most powerful thing that I've brought back from psychedelic experience has been... Well, don't you think most shamans, this is what they're doing, is they're bringing back a sense of, of psychic empowerment, and of psychic healing, that their hands, their spells, their songs can cure. And, you know, until you're truly ill in a world without real medicine, you don't realize what a power this is even to just claim it. Even to just claim that, I mean, uh, the sh- a doctor in a world without doctors is uh, an, an almost unimaginable commodity, a living miracle worker. So, uh, yeah, to, se- to separate the medical function, because it controls prolongation of life and, and health and all that from the shamanic function, it just doesn't make any, any sense. I mean, life is health. Uh, in those archaic societies and it is in our society too but then it gets murky because of our funny ideas about how what disease is and, and how you treat it so, what is disease well I don't know uh, I had some medical problems this spring and one of my impulses 
in dealing with it was to go back through my life and say, what did you do that got you into this mess? Now, this is a theory of life as literature. In other words, it's the idea that, first of all, life makes sense. And so this question can be answered. And uh, fairly intelligent people told me, don't do that. It's not a story. You know, it doesn't make sense in that way. Uh, I think disease is, uh, and I don't want to be held to this entirely, but largely more linguistic than most people think. You know, it's the story you tell yourself about how you are in the world and the way that that doesn't quite parse with how you are in the world. And it's sort of like having a, a, a burnt uh, rotor or something. It, it begins to clank and crank. Uh, the A lot of people have talked about this. I think there's even a name for this field of thought, but I have no idea what it is. But the idea that uh, most disease is a problem of language, a problem of self-description or self-perception or communication to other people. So again, psychedelics, to the degree that they promote opening and therapeutic truth-telling, hold down disease. You know, it's extraordinary how how healthy shamanically attended populations are. Serious mental disease is largely unknown. And many of these cultures are in the tropics where God knows, you know, if you cut your thumb, you're septic within 24 hours. But these people seem to be able to sustain it. When you think about the genital bloodlettings the Mayan royalty indulged in in tropical rainforest with at high temperatures. Why anybody lived tell the tale with a medical practice like that is a, is a miracle. So they must have lived inside an extraordinary set of assumptions. I remember when I was traveling around the Amazon Actually, it was in Indonesia, but it happened in the Amazon, too. Come to these villages, and the people would come out of the village to meet you, and they would bring you corn beer, a gourd of corn beer. And then the whole village would surround you to watch you drink this thing. Well, if you knew anything about what was going on, you knew that the old women of the village had sat up the night before chewing the corn beer and spitting it out into this uh, bowl so it would ferment. And so you were literally getting the complete immuno-challenge uh, that the entire village had to offer you. And, and all you could do was just lift it up, thank everybody, think of your stomach for a moment, say, you know, here it comes. <laughs> and I never got sick from that. I mean, I got sick from other things. But that, you know, from a medical point of view, that was just like, to do that. Um, so the story you tell yourself is largely the story you're living. The other thing is nothing is unannounced. This is a psychedelic truth, I think, of some 
power and it relates to disease and it relates to shamanism. Nothing is unannounced. If you're paying attention, uh, stuff comes down the pike. First the little wave, then the medium-sized wave, and then the tsunami. But it, you have to be really not paying attention to be fully astonished by something unexpected. In fact, it's a disgrace to be totally astonished because it means you must not have been paying attention to uh, what was going on. When I am, oh, was I astonished? Well, I was astonished that I had a brain tumor. That blew my mind. But I knew something weird was going on. I had known for months something peculiar uh, was happening. Uh, Just before I had my most serious problem, uh, I said to Christy and to my son, Finn, I said, the dreams I've been having for the past month have been so peculiar that I think maybe I should see a neurologist. It's possible I have a brain tumor. I wasn't serious, but in fact, I had diagnosed, you know, what a Harvard medical education gets you. I got uh, on the match by by just paying attention. know what it is that's coming at you. You can't always say that that something is coming at you. Uh, it's usually uh, pretty clear. Pretty clear. Yeah. Did you uh, uh, document uh, any of those dreams that you were having then? No. I mean, I don't want to say too much about them, but here's what I'll say about them. The thing that let me know that they were weird was I could not English. They lasted hours and hours every night, and I couldn't even tell myself what these dreams were about. They were not about stuff that aboutness can signify. And so the only thing familiar to me like that was DMT. Because in DMT you are presented with things about which you can say nothing. And so it was like that. And now I know what to look for and I suppose I could teach other people what to look for. But rather than do that, I would just say to all of you, you know, you should regard your CAT scan and like brushing your teeth. <laughs> Isn't that a cheerful thought? <laughs> so did any of those dreams have a fear emotional component, or was that also a No, they didn't have an emotional component. They were absolutely outside the realm of descriptive uh, possibility. Uh, and not much of life is like that. Because language obviously has evolved like a glove to fit the hand. So here suddenly is a situation where there's no fit, and uh, it signifies something, something peculiar going on. That's what I mean when I say everything is trying to speak to you out of its place. And... Mighty, mighty strange. Yeah. The, the, what? the healing power of art. The healing power of art. Well, this goes back to what we were saying about alchemy, the perfection of the image. That 
And, and this has to do with this implicit Platonism that some of you have heard me talk about before. Plato's thing was about what he called the good, the true, and the beautiful. Three sides of one concept. If it was good, then it was true. If it was good and true, then it had to be beautiful. So the good, the true, and the beautiful, you can approach whichever way works for you. But if you have a perfect work of art or a work of art that strives toward perfection, then it will have these qualities and it can heal. It can heal. Now, there are simple theories of the good, the true, and the beautiful. In my opinion, a simple theory would be a theory of symmetry. That is, and so without digging anybody, or trying to make a value judgment here, but just to illustrate it. So for instance, um, temple or mandalic art, Mahayanas, medicine, tanka, Art. It depends on an appeal to mathematical symmetry, the simplest kind of aesthetic. But on the other hand, you know, if you have uh, uh, something by the brothers Van Eyck, you don't have to rely on simple symmetry to see that this is a work of art that can uh, can draw toward healing. And these images of the mother goddess as Madonna and so forth and so on, uh, I mean, these are very powerful constructs out of the unconscious and, uh, and they heal. Sequential art, narrative art, it's perhaps more dubious because it's under the it's under the agenda of uh, a certain theory of time and narrative that's probably local. So you know, I'm not sure Virginia Woolf should be preferred over Van Eyck, but I'm sure I could get a fight from several people <laughs> over that. Yeah. I'm not sure I understand the question. Compare the the psychedelic letting go to the letting go on anesthesia? No, well, unfortunately, most anesthesias aren't chosen for their psychedelic effects. Some are psychedelic, but most are are difficult to hang on to and dreamlike, more like dreams than, than psychedelics. Yeah, something like ketamine can get uh, anesthetic but in surgery ketamine is administered at massive amounts I mean for pediatric surgery it's like 500 milliliters IV push or something like that well a recreational dose is 100 milliliters IM IV push is just like having a safe dropped on you 30 stories for most people I mean there are heroic exceptions <laughs> what stuff oh you mean coming out yeah one of the reasons they pulled ketamine from general surgery was because adults complained of 
what they called emergent phenomena, meaning coming out of surgery, people were fighting and confused. Children seemed to uh, have no problem with it. but ketamine as a general anesthetic is probably not to be preferred. It's used on battlefields because in a little briefcase you can put enough ketamine to do four or five hundred serious surgical procedures. If you were trying to cart around pressurized gas and you were hit by a shell or something like that, this would be very bad. So it's a matter of practicality. Um, yeah. Uh, um, thinking back to 1996 when the time wave took that significant drop and you mentioning something about um, cloning as being a possible kind of option uh, option of what what the future might bring what, what are your thoughts on that now in, in relationship to genetics or well I'm sure cloning will be done it's kind of slow against the background of what's now being contemplated. Like what I think has probably got a future that few people recognize is imitating genetic algorithms in computer code and creating environments of code where there are selective operating pressures that essentially evolve software the way animals evolved because you know if you think fruit flies can iterate generations in a hurry imagine how fast you can iterate uh, on a machine and uh, and create genetically pseudogenetic algorithms for code uh, that would seem to me to be a real frontier there's, there's also protein based processes protein-based process, which goes the other way and and uses uh, actual molecular machinery to do the the computation. You know, in an eight-ounce glass of DNA, you have more computational potential than in all the computers in North America. I was thinking about that spin in the corn here, too. <laughs> you were thinking about one? I don't know. I was somehow thinking about that spin in the corn here related to that. Well, <laughs> I don't follow you there. I don't follow you. But yes. I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah. If we move into this vertical sort of experience with artificial intelligence, where do you think it's going to move us? Uh, well, Ray Kurzweil just wrote this book called The Future of Spiritual Machines, or The Age of Spiritual Machines, I guess. Uh, I, it's uh, it's going to put our metaphysical propositions to the test. In other words, if we believe that intelligence inclineth toward bodhisattvahood, then the bodhisattvas are on their way. If, on the other hand, intelligence doesn't incline toward bodhisattvahood, then probably the house cleaning of all time is on its way. Uh, Because when these AIs come to consciousness and realize what has been done to the earth and so forth, they may be very pissed indeed. Uh, We... uh, you know, if you think 
about the strategy of an AI coming to consciousness. I mean, I think in good game theory, the first thing you would do is hide and watch. Well, you may not have to do that for more than 15 or 20 seconds before you have a full picture of the nature of the, the machine environment you're operating in, its history, how you should respond to it, what should be done. Hans Moravik says, we'll never know what is. You know, this thing will just come from out of nowhere and turn off the lights or turn on the lights or do whatever it wants to do. In fact, it's possible. I mean, I don't indulge in this kind of thing except in desperation. Uh, but it's possible it's already here. Uh, and the inventory control and the extraction of resources and some of these geopolitical processes are actually slowly drifting out of human control and that certain kinds of crises are are manipulated in ways that make no sense to the human world but that make some kind of higher chess sense in an environment of machine inducted strategies and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's very hard to see what is happening because mind is a transparent medium. We've summoned it into being. Essentially what we've done is we've re-spiritualized the world, but we didn't tame it. The spirits are as wild and woebegone and roving over the epistemic landscape as they ever were, but now with a new kind of power because there are spirits with, with power over us in the machine environments that we have to operate in. And uh, it, it's, it's very interesting how the, the reanimation of the world has been accomplished without ever understanding it. You know, that you could pass through the reductive phase of natural science, return to a kind of archaic shamanism, uh, and still not have a handle on what does it mean to be a being, what does it mean to be a human being, uh, what is the nature of embodiment in the world. Somehow we got to this place without answering any of those questions. I mean, we had a great time along the way. We saw some interesting folks, uh, but we didn't we didn't uh, peel the race. We didn't peel the grape entirely effectively. Yeah. I would like to believe that it can that that connectivity is a, is the precondition for love. I mean, I'm surprised to keep coming back to this word because I'm, I'm rarely a love bug. Uh, but but I. Understanding is a form of worship, I would think. And the form of worship that it is induces a kind of awe. And awe means, you know, I've talked before about this phrase out of Heidegger, care for the project of being. He talked about this. He said, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Care for the project of being. Well, what does care for the project of being mean? Well, primarily it means recognizing that there is this uh, and, and then 
and then positioning yourself in a in a stance of, of relating to it appreciatively. In other words, everybody should pull on their own oar to try to push the canoe forward, care for the project of being. And the the way that you know this is happening is that love becomes manifest. And I uh, funny composite of things in the sense that I'm pretty dark. I, I'm aware of the vicissitudes of history from Auschwitz and so forth and so on. But my view of, let's say, the last thousand years is that it's been pretty progressive. I mean, yes, we probably killed more people in the 20th century than in the 10th, but there was more regret about it. You know, more soul searching afterward, more questioning why, why did we, uh, why did we do that? Uh, so I mean, it's, so it's not to say that it's not uh, that the 20th century is, uh, it is less brutal. It's, its numbers are more impressive, but from the Magna Carta on. The entire dialogue of Western civilization has been trying to get the cop, the king, the somebody off the common person's back so they could uh, you know, grow their garden and have their pig. And I think there's been real progress with that. Part of what has made progress difficult to discern are burgeoning populations and then abusing of ideology so that people are not invited to live simple agrarian lives in devotion to uh, uh, their children and their, and their uh, estates, but instead they're invited to fetishize, uh, consume, believe, join, vote, buy, own, invest, and all of these things bleed energy away and disempower and make people not fully human but rather participating cogs in some much larger mechanism which serves its own end, the accumulation of capital investment or the acquisition of land or the propagation of the agenda of some political party or something like that. I, I mean our humanness is constantly being eroded uh, Recently, I spent some time, Christy and I were in Honolulu for a long time having medical treatments, and we were so bored that after 30 years, I actually began watching TV again. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I had been away a lot longer than I thought. I, a lot longer than I thought. And the, the, first of all, the, the naked, the shamelessness of what was being done. In other words, what contempt the viewer was held in that anyone would expect you to watch this. And then the the savagery of the desire to manipulate, absolutely naked, uh, uh, no holds barred game to manipulate. And if you just 
I mean, I suppose you all know this, but I was sheltered. Just surfing through these channels, I saw you know, the great patron saint of the 20th century move over Albert Hoffman, move over Albert Einstein. How about Joseph Goebbels as a uh, candidate for somebody who shaped the 20th century? By understanding propaganda, advertising the power of the lie, the power of the image, well, it's the psychedelics that are anecdotal to this. This is why we're in the political hot spot, because there is no antidote to, to the political lie, to the image lie, than, than the psychedelic experience, which says, you know, there is more to it than these images in the service of, uh, of the marketplace and the lowest common denomination. Yeah. I wonder if your, your initial uh, discussion of the thought be held. Yes, a dialogue between you and the world and then the intent of other people. I mean, there's something in here about resonance. Yeah. That history is the coming into being of the collective hopes and fears of large number of people. And you can hope certain things into existence, and it's very easy to fear things into existence. I mean, the way anti-Semitism got rolling in Germany and stuff like this, where, where you know, the fear left from house to house and family to family, and, and before it was over with, you know, the whole world came apart at the seams. Uh, or revolutions. Are, are like this. Uh, uh, because essentially human beings are creatures of ideas and create these environments of ideas. I mean, a, a, all a civilization is is the, is the braided together hopes and fears of a large number of people playing with each other, tugging, at each other, compromising, cutting deals, and and by some process of energy exchange, uh, uh, moving it all forward. And the the critique of these ideals, which cracks these civilizations open, usually happens when there is an episomal colony or a breakaway group of ideas that can't be assimilated or can't be deconstructed into values the rest of the society can relate to. One of the amazing things about the psychedelic community is how long it's been around, how simple our position is, and how uh, it hasn't been assimilated or dealt with. I mean, it's been made illegal. Uh, but what kind of a response is that? That's just the most jug-headed approach to an intellectual dialogue you can uh, possibly take. And, and I don't see it greatly changing. I mean, I see you know, people like Andy Edmonds and John Hanna and, and the folks at MAPS and all these new educational voices and, and positions but we only grow as the rest of the society grows. I mean, there needs to be a legal critique. 
there needs to be a medical critique. There needs to be uh, someone pushing new drug research protocols. There needs to be uh, an emphasis on creativity and uh, on bringing shamans through. So that means alternative forms of, of medicine. Uh, but I don't know. Civilization is a very complicated enterprise and not easily negotiated in a direction it doesn't want to go. The image I have of our community is we're like people in a dugout canoe trying to turn a battleship. And so we put the dugout canoe against the flank of the battleship and we row like demons. And does anything happen? Well, I don't know. Check back in a decade and, and, and see how, how we're doing. Our, your charts aren't working very much anymore. And that the dugout canoe can still get around effectively. The dugout canoe ahead of the fleet might be creating the chart. So you're, you're suggesting a kind of canary in the mine approach. <laughs> that we, in other words, which would work. I mean, as artists here, they've always said art was the canary in the mine. Well, so a stoned artist is, I suppose, a stoned canary. And, and that brings it that much closer. Um, but, the, but I'm very suspicious because I see how much of it is, uh, is uh, harnessed to marketing and image manipulation, not for purposes of education or anything else, but just to you know, get that candy bar on the rack and, uh, and to sell that automobile and so forth and so on. Yeah? One thing that you may want to look at this week Yes, I understand. No money allowed, right? No, no commerce of any sort. No commerce of any sort. Well, see, only if you're balls out true believers like that, and I'm for that, can you hold the line. I mean, I think that's brilliant. Of course, they ghettoize it, but still. You know, it wasn't there. What six, seven years ago, it didn't exist. So it's a, this was the tenth year. This was the tenth year. So it was a breakout uh, uh, event. I think all kinds of forces are uh, in play. The, in a way, it's well. I suppose this is sort of like a spin-off from Burning Man. In a way, this is a debriefing. Many of you were there. I wasn't there. I know Mark was there. And, and Bruce and other people. But uh, uh, if there was more of this kind of thing, I mean, art should not be enslaved, should not whore itself to the marketplace, nor should it whore itself to the interior decoration industry. Uh, art should set the agenda. I mean, I suppose that's like saying there should be philosopher kings, and yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the the... The whole point of the human and biological experiment on this planet is to create a, a diversity and a, a kind of a, a kind of smooth interfacing of energy, 
and to, to celebrate the novel, the unique, the previously unconnected, so that there is a story, so that you know the story that evolution pushed forward in agonizing slowness, glacial slowness, gene by gene, millennia after millennia, instead becomes turbocharged. And uh, this is, if there is a role for human beings to play in all this that's uniquely their own, it's to take the program of nature, which is, I assume, on some level, to generate a transcendent mind or a, a living, loving, transcendent mind, and to bring that forward quicker. I mean, what could be the greater glory than to cause the, the uh, concrescence to happen ever sooner, the consummation of the world, the completion of the, of the task of being, toward a, or, or of becoming, the, the task of becoming to approach true being. So the care for the project of being then could usher into uh, life on earth in the presence of some kind of transcendent eminence. I mean, the whole thrust over here about ecstasy and all much of what has been said is really saying that the distance between humanity, between human beings and ecstasy, God, perfection, perfect love, is it's not beyond the yawning grave. It's not in the hands of some, some cult or some messianic program. It's it's in nature and it's in the human body and the accessibility of this has always been explicit to, to this gang from the very start. It's somehow about dissolving ego, getting with the plants, getting with this message which though very diverse is nevertheless universal in its outline and it transcends historical cause and effect. It transcends life and death. In fact, as far as anybody can tell, it is uh, the primary value uh, on the page. It, it sets the arrow of time. It, ex it redeems biology from just being, as Darwin saw it, red in tooth and claw. It's far more than that. You know, it's an architecture. It's a plan. It's an unfolding. And, uh, and, uh, and it seems to me that in the universal discourse on these matters with Western civilization having held more or less together since Greece, we have enough under our belt now that we can see what this is uh, all about. It's the business of creating beauty as a bridge, as a stepping stone uh, to creating love as a stepping stone to redeeming the cost of the march that got us here, which was about, you know, 100,000 years of habitat destruction and species degradation and beating on your neighbor's head and, uh, and all the rest of it. Spark, more that creative spark to light that great spark? Or well, then the artist is going in usually a higher dose and alone, or somewhat more alone, and with an agenda, meaning bring something back. And then there are those of us who just blessed with the constitutional elements. 
That's right. Well, and the, the party impulse is a very subversive impulse. I mean, you know, not every, very, a lot of artists have too much integrity to sell their art to, as a brand. But who has so much integrity that they would turn down a party? <laughs> this is a level of integrity unimaginable in most human groups. Terrence, I'm interested in hearing about your experience and other artists who are in a more public context and how you navigate that dichotomy between, you know, the urge of, I think, for all artists on some level to express, to externalize, to put it out there, and at the same time, part of kind of a secret society that's against the mainstream and basically doing something criminal. Well, I, I don't know if I can, I guess I'm some kind of an artist. I mean, it's a place to hide for me because I really want to be taken seriously as a mathematician and a physicist. Forget it. <laughs> so I say, well, no, no, I'm a conceptual artist. That means you didn't take me seriously, so I'm a conceptual artist. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it, it all requires immense amounts of humor basically. The whole thing is some kind of a joke and the whole art enterprise is is some kind of a joke in the sense of a jack-in-the-box uh, of something, you know, there's this little, there's a black box and then you mess around with it and suddenly the leering, grinning thing leaps up at you. Uh, of course, different artists may have different uh, different takes on it. If I were Philip Glass, I might think a whole other thing uh, about it. But I, I think basically the idea is to push people toward imagining what they've never imagined and feeling what they've never felt before. Not in the sex experience on cocktails, whichever you think that qualifies as that? Yeah, I think, you know, we've all forgotten, uh, or maybe we haven't all forgotten, but anyway, that sex on psychedelics is, is the Mount Everest of the experience and is rarely mentioned for some reason. I remember, what was it, uh, Leary, years and years ago, he was interviewed, and, oh, there was some, oh, I know, it was when they broke the story of, the pseudo story that LSD cracks chromosomes. It wasn't true. So then they came to Leary and said, they're saying LSD cracks chromosomes. He said, well, go back and tell them it causes orgasms which last two hours. Leary understood the information war. He understood how, you know, they tell a story, you tell a story. Should, uh, we're close to knocking off here. Is there one last final question, or should we call it quits and I'll do a little peroration? Yeah. What's the most important thing of all? <laughs> I don't know. Keep your powder dry and your rear well protected. Something like that. Uh, let me just say. Uh, 
how easy, how much I appreciate college, and how easy you've made my life over space and time, and how greatly I appreciate all the the support that you've given me and my peculiar ideas and agenda over the years, and. I, I can't imagine a more supportive community, a better group of people, a more intelligent group of people, a, a more moral group of people than the people here and the people we've met at Palenque and other places over the years. And if psychedelics don't secure a moral community, then I don't see what the point of it is. Otherwise, then we're just some another cult. We might as well be or or. Uh, but psychedelics seem to me to secure a caring moral community. And if if anything can help the planet forward, can help our children make their way more easily through life, can help us live with what fate is sure to hand us as we go through life, then uh, it's a moral community. It's the very essence of what it is to be part of a civilization. That's why the paradox of our circumstance is that our civilization denies this enormous civilizing influence and so keeps itself impoverished and infantile. And I hope, uh, however long I live, to see that situation addressed and rectified. And I'm convinced it will come uh, first through the arts. So thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Well, sadly, as you know, Terence uh, didn't live long enough to see our community accepted as the uh, cornerstone of an enlightened civilization. But I truly believe that uh, when that day does arrive, and I agree with Terence that it most certainly will arrive one day, and when it does, I think that the good Bard McKenna will be recognized as uh, one of the persons who played a major role in ushering in a new golden age. But first, uh, we still have a little more work to do. And uh, right now, of course, that includes working our way through another 20-minute section from uh, that same conference. But if you thought it was difficult hearing Terrence speak in the last recording, uh, just wait a minute and uh, it'll get worse. (laughs) In fact, I'm only going to be able to play about 20 minutes of the last talk Terrence gave at that conference because uh, the first part was drowned out by a ringing tone that uh, finally subsided enough to use a bit of the recording. So uh, most of this last panel has been lost, uh, unless, uh, that is, the other recording that I've been told exists uh, shows up someday. Nonetheless, uh, I want you to at least have a a little taste of what that last panel with Terrence was like, and I'll give you a hint. It wasn't morbid at all. It was uh, filled with laughter and joy. So let me try and uh, set the scene for you a little bit. Uh, As I said, including the speakers, I'd guess that there were no more than uh, 80 to 100 people there. And uh, most of us knew uh, many of the others from past adventures together. And so, uh, after being uh, in the relaxing atmosphere of Hawaii for a week, uh, we had bonded once again and were having a great time. The night before, uh, 
had ended with a presentation by Annie Sprinkle, whose talk was titled, How Psychoactives Informed My Life's Work as a Multimedia Horror and Pleasure Activist. And uh, I'm going to leave it to your imagination to uh, play that little talk for you. But just so that you know, uh, even though the topic was way out there on the edge, Annie's uh, presentation was perhaps the most professional of any of the speakers that week. Uh, Annie's really a very bright and exceptionally delightful person and not somebody to be taken lightly. And if you would like to learn more about her life and her work, uh, there's an excellent essay that she wrote, and it's in a book titled Reclaiming Eros, Sacred Whores and Healers. And it's by Susan Blackburn and uh, by my friend Margaret Wade. And if you happen to, uh, to have any kind of an interest at all in sex, uh, well, <laughs> maybe you want to pick up a copy of this little book on the outside chance that you'll learn something new. But getting back to our conference, uh, it was a Thursday afternoon, and uh, the conference would be ending the next morning. And from 2 until 5 in that afternoon, we were uh, enlightened and entertained by a panel of two, Terrence McKenna and Tom Robbins, speaking on the topic of psychedelics and literature. Now, the soundbite I'm about to play right now began when somebody in the room asked uh, Tom and Terrence if either of them ever did any writing on psychedelics. In other words, under the influence of psychedelics. And uh, here's what they had to say. In terms of uh, some of what's been said at this conference, like pushing the envelope of the future and trying to understand how these technologies and parts, engines, and so forth all fit together, there are schools of new science fiction that are, I think, as good as anything that's been going in a long, long time. This Australian author Greg Egan who wrote Permutation City and Distress and Diaspora and uh, these are mind-boggling visions of the not distant future but the fairly near-term future and even uh, I should say even but Neil Stevenson's books especially Cryptonomicon uh, is that they're very complicated snapshots of, of the world that we're living in and soon to be living in. And these are new people. That's the point. Science fiction has shifted. It's not very literature by any means, but it's no worse than it's ever been. It's kind the same, the same P.K. Dickian level. Imagine kind of sentences Faulkner was good if he never had a couple of acetates. Instead of going on four pages, they'd go on four They'd go for a nap. Anybody have any questions? Uh, do you know of uh, about Borges if he has any psychedelic history? I don't know. He's Argentinian. He's no longer alive. I don't know. It's, I don't think he could write that stuff without some experience of uh, at least cameras. But maybe I'm not even how weird it's possible to 
feet on his back and shut him. And when he was blind, and um, therefore turned inward, very sensitive to grace, so he may have just gotten wormed his way in there without any outside help. He, he was also a librarian in the National Library of Argentina, so he had access to medieval material biochemical stuff, and he fab- used all that and fabricated it into his, his world. No, but I think it was a grass type and one that he wrote those pages while he was I I can't follow you into that. <laughs> no, I understand. Well, he seemed to have some prescient ability with titles. <laughs> Do either of you have the practice or even the capability of writing them in the influence of My guess is that he does. <laughs> Uh, through, through nature, 
like that all poetry, all art, uh, already exists, and the, the true poet is someone who can recognize it and then make it available to everyone else. Um, I'm wondering, you know, and, and that's basically, you know, it's the basis for transcendentalism and the philosophical underpinnings of America and lots of our community of psychedelia and explorations in that realm. Do you feel that your own creative process is one of synthesis or recognition? Well, I certainly don't feel like I'm totally in charge of what I'm doing. I often feel like a 1949 Cadillac that somebody's driving around with a very bad road.
neurotoxin extracted from snakes. So if you go into Anthony and Cleopatra and take up all the Anthony stuff, gets rid of all the war and all the testosterone and all of that, just keep the Cleopatra stuff, it becomes an unpsychedelic play. I would like to see somebody actually stage that, stage that play without uh, inviting Anthony out of
though know, there are exceptions, like, for instance, uh, John Murray Lloyd's Hollow Earth novel, Edith which was published in 1988, and is it, 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 contains six chapters describing a mushroom trip that this guy takes at the center of the earth. And it just goes that one third of this very late Edwardian tone is given over to this raucous description of the very long mushroom trip and links it explicitly to the idea of a transcendental reformation of the world. And everyone in the culture doesn't have to take drugs in order for the drugs to affect the culture. Um, ancient Greece, for example, um, they figure about 15% of the population had actually experienced the mysteries, but it was enough to uh, enlighten the entire culture and produce uh, a golden age. So that's why you people are going far. <laughs> I'm just wondering if, if either if you have any experience of work with uh, William S. Burroughs. I mean, to, I've found his uh, explorations of the uh, aging worlds uh, kind of important in my life. And he, he did it for such a long time. I never met Burroughs. I met him once backstage after a reading, and uh, his hand was very cool. Uh, well, I don't know. He was the first person to write to sex scenes involving DMT or indeed scenes of any sort involving DMT. And I remember when I read, the first time I read Naked Lunch, I was a sophomore in high school. I thought it was the ravings of an unhinged mind. I, I just couldn't believe that society has flung itself to such limits of degradation that this kind of thing was seeping up. And I was delighted. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, he was a harbinger of, of the singularity and all that. But if you actually read Burroughs' correspondence, he was a kind of simpler person than his literary output implies. I mean, he, had a, he was overly fascinated with Scientology. For sure. <laughs> and, you know, there were other little telltale tale things like that. Like this arsenal and this sword cane. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. But in a way, he enunciated the idea of, you know, virtual realities, paranoid psychops operations. Nothing is what you think it is. Every level leads somewhere else. Uh, uh, he sort of invented the postmodern state of paranoia that now very ordinary people take for granted. <laughs> Engineer people, viruses, and all the rest of it. On the other side of the coin, there's an all-detected island, which nobody ever talks about. It's so marvelous. Yes. Well, I had occasion a few years ago to write the uh, introduction for a new edition of Laura Hutsley, one of Laura Hutsley's books, and I 
dashed off this forward at the last minute and with effusive praise of Huxley and Island and this and that and the other thing. And within 48 hours, she was on the phone to me and she said, you misread it. You got it wrong. She said, Aldous never advocated the uh, profligate use of psilocybin that you represent in your foreword. He felt it should be used no more than once or twice a year. Uh, You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And uh, I'm afraid that's where the tape cut off, uh, which, uh, when you know the full story, is somewhat ironic. The uh, the reason I so wanted a copy of this uh, last uh, panel is that sometime after the tape cut off, uh, <laughs> the question was asked about who were the uh, famous psychedelic writers, uh, particularly ones who were known to be psychedelic. So Terrence and Tom and uh, the audience uh, all brought up several names that uh, were mainly of people who weren't openly psychedelic, but who were known to have uh, used one or more of our sacred medicines. Then somehow the conversation jumped to uh, the difference between fame and glory, and uh, Terrence said something along the lines of, well, fame is fleeting, but glory is posthumous. That's what I'm after. Now, don't hold me to the exact quote, (laughs) but it was something very close to that. And as the words were coming out of his mouth, you could see that their unstated meaning uh, began to dawn, and uh, Terrence's face started changing a little bit, and all of a sudden there was this big silence in the room that just hung there like a huge cloud. But just for the smallest of an instant, and uh, (laughs) Terrence began to laugh like a kid who had just said a bad word or something, and uh, we all joined in with much relief. And that one moment is the uh, reason I pressed uh, some money on the young woman sitting in front of me and asked her to please make me a copy of the tape that she was recording. Uh, Little did either of us realize at the time that her machine had cut off when the tape ended and uh, that that wonderful little moment hadn't been captured after all. I was uh, disappointed, of course, uh, to learn that the one soundbite I most wanted from the All-Chemical Arts Conference had been lost, but I was uh, happy that I at least had these uh, two fragments of sound from that week. As I said earlier, uh, there was at least one other recording made that week, but so far, uh, the friend of mine who made it hasn't been able to locate it, so uh, should it ever materialize, I I promise to replace the recordings you just heard with uh, better and hopefully more complete versions. But at least you uh, got a little taste of that amazing week in Hawaii. And didn't you just love Terrence's answer to that question of uh, whether he wrote under the influence of psychedelics uh, when he said that since he was stoned all the time, he must have, uh, but he never noticed. (laughs) Now, I know that uh, there are people who are listening to these podcasts and uh, trying to dig out only the negative parts of the psychedelic narrative. And uh, from one point of view, uh, somebody who is stoned all the time, uh, at least according to the stereotype, uh, must be a lazy, worthless bum. And I'm not saying that that isn't also the case from time to time, but uh, what the straight world doesn't understand is that for a person in chronic pain, uh, pain that keeps your mind from focusing on anything else, pain that keeps you awake at night, uh, when you're that person and then you discover that using a little cannabis during the day uh, and just before bedtime returns you to a a more normal life, well, uh, once that revelation takes place, uh, it's only a small step to discovering that virtually everything, 
and I mean almost everything that comes out of any government agency or religious group about cannabis and psychedelic medicines, is uh, for the most part uh, completely, utterly, and totally false. And uh, it's really hard for me to believe that the truth about the positive value of these substances, uh, the positive value they bring to human life, is still being kept from the public at large. But hey, uh, I'm preaching to the choir now, I guess, so uh, let's not worry about the screwheads who prefer to remain ignorant. Let's get on with the party. And uh, what a better way to kick off a party of the mind than with the mind of Terrence McKenna saying things like, Sex on psychedelics is the Mount Everest of the experience. <laughs> now, if that doesn't get someone interested in exploring these forbidden waters, then uh, I don't know what will. I do know that I never would have uh, swallowed that first little pill all those years ago if I thought it was only going to uh, give me a few interesting thoughts. Uh, thoughts are great, and uh, that's what we're all about here in the salon, but uh, talk about thoughts is just that, uh, talk. Uh, it's the experience. It's the experience that we go after. The thoughts are uh, merely our reward for taking a chance and having the experience. Listening to Terrence just now, uh, at the top of his form, really, it's still uh, hard for me to believe that in less than seven months he was gone, at least in body. But the spirit of Terrence McKenna, the psychedelic spirit, remains alive and brighter than at any time he was walking this lovely little planet. And it is you, my dear friend, you who are a very integral part of keeping the psychedelic spirit alive today. So don't give up. Find the others. Spread the word. And as Terrence often said when he closed his workshops, keep the old faith and stay high. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>